0: Hello, this is AR Bernard and welcome to my podcast. My objective, it's simple, to create a platform where you can be educated, informed, and inspired as you navigate the intersection of faith and culture. If you have no faith, maybe you'll find it here. So thanks for tuning in. Good morning. morning. You all look blessed and amen. If you go to CCC, that's what you should be declaring over your life every day of your life life. Amen. God called us to be free. God called us to flourish. Jesus came that we may have life and that we might have it more what? Abundantly. Abundantly. And you want to walk in that abundant life. And how many know that that takes not only faith, but persistence. And at the end of the day, persistence is omnipotent when you're persistent and stay at it and stay at it and stay at it and refuse to give in, all right, you will see results. How many know that you will see results? Praise the Lord. There's enough odor in this world, we need a fragrance. Turn your neighbor and say, he's talking about you already. The fragrance that is. Yeah, they're just people who are just negative all the time. And, I mean, they can't find good in anything. So you can understand that they are at odds with themselves. But Jesus came to make us whole, to bring spirit, soul, and body back in harmony with each other. And that is a process. Praise the Lord. Amen? Well, it is Sunday morning, and we're excited about being in the house of the Lord. To pray, to worship together. Amen word, fellowship, interact with each other, and we are grateful. I want to uh, acknowledge public advocate Jumani Williams, his lovely wife, India, and family, and that miracle baby. We're glad to have them with us today. Praise the Lord. And, and India scooting out, doing the mom thing. We got you, India. Don't worry about it. Praise the Lord. And we have elected officials who are members of our congregation, and, you know, we're not going to... Uh, introduce you every Sunday, but we're glad that you're here uh, with us. I also want to take a moment. I, for about 10 years, was the president of the Council of Churches of the city of New York, and I had the opportunity to meet some incredible people in that capacity. It represented over 1.2 million Christians, and Protestants, and, and mainline congregants, evangelicals, I mean, across the boards. And we interfaced with Catholic Church and other uh, religious leaders as well. It was a wonderful experience for me. And one of the individuals that I got to meet and develop long-term relationship with was a a doctor by the name, and and say doctor, pastor, all right? Uh, And we just called him Dr. Chang, but his name is Dr. Uh, Young-Toon Chang. And he passed in 2020. But we have fond memories of working together on many, many issues, and his support was immeasurable when it came to getting things done, especially moving our structures and systems and our elected officials. And we have the Korean American Presbyterian Church representatives with us today. They're on the balcony. Come on, stand. We just want to applaud you, welcome you. Thank you for being with us. Thank you for continuing the legacy of Dr. Chang, a very good and dear friend. Praise the Lord. I get the opportunity to work with so many elected officials over the years. And, um, you know, two weeks ago, I had the opportunity to pray uh, at the opening of the Senate. And let me announce that we're going to unpack that prayer. We're doing something called a debrief. And um, Dr. Uh, Honorio, myself, Uh, Pastor Jamal, uh, Minister Lisa Purville, uh, also uh, Minister Errol Parker, and we're going to be shooting that. It's going to be about 40 to 45 minutes long. We're going to unpack that prayer. And I also get to talk about uh, me not using the name of Jesus at the end of that prayer. I'm sure that will be an interesting conversation for some of y'all out there. (laughs) Praise the Lord. And understanding audience, understanding opportunities, understanding how we take advantage of those opportunities, and also understanding what that means. Because what I discovered is many don't know what in the, in the name of Jesus means. They think it's an incantation that you tag at the end of your prayer, and all of a sudden your prayer becomes legitimized and authorized. But what if a person whose heart is far from God attaches in the name of Jesus at the end of their prayer. Does it all of a sudden become legitimized legitimized or authorized? We're going to unpack that and have that conversation as well. Praise the Lord. So thank you for your prayers and as God brings these opportunities. Along the way, one of those friendships has come about uh, over time and and relationship and also in initiatives, and that is with our own uh, Senator Kirsten Gillibrand. Senator Gillibrand, let me just give a quick introduction. She's been here before. You know who she is. She doesn't shy away from a big fight. In just her first term in the Senate, uh, Senator Gillibrand passed the historic 9-11 health bill, which ensured that first responders and 9-11 survivors got the <laughs> health care that they deserve. <clears throat> and you know what? I, I, often when they give me an introduction, it, they end up giving me part of the senator's speech so I'm gonna stop here before I tell all the things she wanted to tell I'm gonna let her tell it the way she wants to tell it so we're glad to have her as a partner in change a partner in bettering our communities and bettering our city our state our nation let's give a warm welcome to senator Kirsten Gillibrand
1: have an amen this morning? Well, you have an extraordinary pastor. Reverend A.R. Bernard is not only an iconic leader, but he is a voice for a nation. And when he came to the Capitol to pray in the U.S. Senate before we opened the floor for our work that day, he called on a God as big as our problems. He was a big God that has no end to what he can do. He talked about our role to serve the common good, that no matter where you're coming from, our job is to serve the common good. And he talked about the spirit of renewal, that we as a Congress have to come together to get things done. It was a beautiful prayer and I'm so grateful that he's gonna spend time telling you about it. I also find Reverend Bernard to be one of the greatest bright lights of our generation. He has such a light. Just as the word of God lights our path, his words light our present. He lights our ability to go forward and do God's work to help teach us how to be stronger and better Christians, how to love God with all our hearts and minds. And thank you, Reverend Bernard, for welcoming me today. So I wanna just talk a little bit about who I am in Christ. Uh, I came to Christ probably 30 years ago because of a great preacher here in New York City and my path has been long and steady, but the thing that touched me the most as a young Christian was the parable of the talents, because the words the Bible uses there are so convicting. For the servant that got five talents and invested and got five more, for the servant that got two talents and invested and got two more, all given based on their abilities, God said to them, good and faithful servant, How many of us wanna hear that on our deathbed? Good and faithful servant, all of us. We don't wanna be like the guy who buried that talent and did nothing because he was afraid of his master, that his master was a cruel or strict man, not using God's gift for the good of others, not investing it in his community, not making a difference. He was sent off to darkness and gnashing of teeth. We don't want that. (laughs) And so that's what convicted me to do public service, to change my life from a big city lawyer to go do public service. It was what convicted me and my faith has helped me every step of the way. Cause God chooses us. He chooses us to be here at a time such as this, just like he picked Esther out of nowhere to serve in her time, in her place to save the Jews. That's what he does for all of us. He's picking us every day to be here at this time, to make a difference. And in leadership, that is especially true. We have Farrah Lewis here, your city council member. We have Jumani Williams here, our public advocate. God picked Hakeem Jeffries to be the next speaker of the House. He's picked these great leaders to serve and to make a difference and to help to listen to his call, to do his good works, and to bring people together in faith. Now we've had a very hard few weeks losing Tyree Nichols and the way his family lost him, it's unconscionable. It's a disgrace, it's evil. And for him to call out for his mama in his last breath, I don't think there's a mother in America who could tolerate that. So that is our calling. What are we doing now in this moment to stop that? Passing new laws to make sure policing and public safety go hand in hand for everyone. That is my responsibility. But in these hard times, I just want to end with this one thing. God walks with us. He is right next to us every day, sitting with us, talking to us, nourishing us, meeting our needs. He gives us strength and He gives us courage. He gave us His Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit drives us, helps us, gives us the conscience we need when we need it. Jesus said the Holy Spirit was more powerful than Him. Hard to believe. But that's what the triumvirate God is. That's what it means. It's the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit all working towards good for us because God loves us and gave gave us His Son. So he gives us power, he gives us tools, and the one piece of scripture I love the most, because it is everything. He asks us to put on the armor of God. And the armor of God is so powerful. We have the belt of truth. It lets us know what's true. He gives us the breastplate of righteousness, so we know right from wrong. He has our our feet fitted in the Holy Spirit so we can stand our ground. He gives us the helmet of salvation, so no matter what, we are saved. No matter what happens to our bodies, we are with him. And most powerful of all, he gives us a weapon. The weapon is the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And who is the word of God? Who is the living God? It's Jesus Christ. He is our weapon, he is our sword, he is our protector.
0: You may be seated. Now, I, I, I'm gonna say something because, you know, sometimes elected officials come to a church service and they put on religion to appeal to the crowd, okay? But uh, we were in, a, uh, in Washington, D.C. at the same time for this prayer, and I will say to you that it was Senator Gillibrand who was instrumental in making that opportunity happen. And uh, I appreciate that very much, along with our Senator Chuck Schumer. But she gathered uh, a large body of faith leaders across New York State uh, in a way that we haven't come together and need to come together, and she got up and started preaching, <laughs> and to the dismay and, and, and appreciation of all of us who were there. But let me uh, just talk about the Bible studies and, and prayer breakfast that goes on on a weekly basis that you're part of, please.
1: You know, Washington is a lonely place, and uh, there's a great deal of harmful things there, people who do not serve for the right reasons. And so when I first arrived, I got invited to the weekly prayer breakfast, and you go and you have to give your testimony about why God matters to you, or what's your faith journey, or how do you see the world, and I talked about my faith journey. And I thought I could never go to prayer breakfast because it started at 8 a.m. And as a young mother at the time, I had an infant and I had a toddler. And so I didn't know how to get them to daycare and get there by 8 a.m. I couldn't do it because the daycare opened at 8 a.m. So I thought this isn't gonna be for me. But I realized on that day that it actually doesn't really start till 8.30. (laughs) And so I started going and I became a regular member. I now chair the prayer breakfast. About 12 senators come every week. To worship together, to pray together, to hear each other's testimonies. The more I got involved in prayer breakfast, the more I realized I needed more nourishment. And there are two Bible studies. I go to one on Thursday, all Republicans. I'm the only Democrat. There's about ten of us. And then I go to Chaplain Brack, Black's prayer, uh, excuse me, Bible study on Thursdays, and that has two Democrats and three Republicans. But this is what keeps me sane. This is what keeps me motivated. This is what keeps me centered. It matters everything for me. I would not still be in public service if not for that prayer breakfast and those Bible studies.
0: Amen. Thank you so much, Senator. Thank you. And there are things that are going on in the houses of power that you may not know about. And because you don't hear about these things, it's easy to judge that they're all sinners. But how many know that God has his people everywhere? And it's respons- our responsibility as the church to pray for God's people that he puts in positions of power as they learn how to navigate without alienate, alienating people that they're trying to reach. Too often we become so dogmatic with our Christianity that we chase people away. And, and unfortunately, we're in a climate where people only listen long enough to see if you're on their side. And if they deem you're not, then they dismiss everything that you're saying. So it's no longer about the merits of the argument. Uh, we've got to pray. Remember, God created government to restrain evil, to preserve order, to promote the common good, to promote justice. God created Government, but people created politics. <laughs> and that's why we have to pray for those people because politics comes in every fashion, shape, and form imaginable. And it's not government, it's the politics that's involved with government that we find all the tensions that we experience and inequities in which we experience. Those are the systems and structures that have to be changed and the impact of the people is necessary. So that's why the Bible says, pray for those in positions of power, for kings, amen? For those in positions of influence. So please, keep them in your prayers. This month is Black History Month where we take the opportunity not just to look at black history but the impact of faith in history. So you will see a few pieces every Sunday throughout the month and we hope you appreciate our time, taking time to appreciate that journey and that history in terms of uh, people of color in this nation. Thank you. God bless.
2: family, it's Black History Month, and throughout the next four weeks, we want to celebrate by bringing you intriguing facts that your history books probably did not include. This week, we start where it all began, in Africa, specifically in East Africa, in what is presently known as Ethiopia. While Ethiopian oral tradition states that the Apostle Matthew traveled to Ethiopia in the first century to preach the gospel and eventually suffered martyrdom, the first documented presence of Christianity in the region occurred in the fourth century, around 340 to 356 AD, in the ancient kingdom of Aksum, which covers present day Eritrea. Northern Ethiopia, Western Yemen, Southern Saudi Arabia, and Sudan. At its zenith, Aksum was regarded as being equal to Persia, China, and Rome. Aksum became rich and powerful by controlling the trade routes between Rome, India, and other powerful nations. It controlled the narrow southern opening at the southernmost point of the Red Sea and essentially charged a toll for ships entering and exiting the Red Sea. The people of Aksum developed their own written language referred to as Ga'is, and they minted their own gold coins. Aksum also traded with nations as far away as India and China. King Azana is the most celebrated and most widely known Aksumite king. He read and spoke three different languages, Ge'ez, Greek, and Sabaean. However, King Azana is known best for his conversion to Christianity in and around the year 333 AD. He learned Christianity from Frumentius, a Tyrian missionary who was shipwrecked in Aksum and became a tutor for the then young prince. Prometheus would later become a bishop in Aksum. King Azana converted to Christianity. He encouraged his entire nation to convert from the various indigenous religions to Christianity. This was around 340 AD. The objective of his leadership was to bring the various different ethnic and linguistic groups of the Aksumite kingdom together via Christianity. He changed the images of the official currency from a crescent, which was a symbol of their former religion, to the cross. He was the first world leader to put a cross on a coin and Aksum was one of the first kingdoms in the world to become officially a Christian nation. There's so much more to the great kingdom of Aksum, but I must stop there. I hope this brief history has enlightened you, inspired you, and encouraged you to go deeper into black history, because black history is everyone's history.
3: How y'all doing? you ready for the word today? I know I am. We want to teach you a new song. And the Holy Spirit said they're going to love it. And if they don't like it, they're going to act like it. Well, let me tell you, somebody repeat after me. Like a symphony, we will, all in harmony, raise you a sound. So, I want you to put on your imagination, okay? Maybe we get some French horns. We get some violins. We get some oboes. And just in the balcony, maybe some tubas because they'll stand tall. How many know Lucifer, as the Bible records, just even in heaven, just as the worship leader, if you will, had, you know, even throughout his body, you know, you pipes and, 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 and it was instrumental. But how many know he's kind of what we call an unemployed worship leader? And now we all have the job amen so let, let me let me just let me just uh, commission you right quick can you can you just stand if you will and just raise your hands and, and let's practice our job today just raise your hands and, and let's release the sound of worship hallelujah yeah. I'm, I'm on Dubai, yeah.
4: yes release the sound Yahweh Yahweh the sound family whoa hallelujah whoa
3: going to teach you, and then you're going to sing. Okay.
4: Like a symphony, all in harmony, we will raise you a sound. It's a sound of love for no other one but the one we adore. All in harmony, we will raise you a sound, yeah, it's a sound of love for no other one but the one we adore. Oh, come on, internet to sing! It's a sound. It's a sound of love. For no other one. No other one. But the one. But the one we adore. Y'all gotta come on, y'all song like a symbol. Like a symbol. All in harmony. Look in harmony. Come on, family, raise it. We will raise you a sound. Uh huh. It's a sound of love. But who? Your elder sing it. Raise you elder singing. Aha! It's a sound. It's a sound. No the so one, the one, the no one, no one, one we adore. Let me hear the family sing. Come on, like a symphony. Like a symphony Woo! All in harmony. We will, we will raise. A oh my goodness! You sound beautiful. It's a Oh
0: you when, that when you look down on the confusion the darkness the violence and aggression the human condition your response was love for you so loved the world not hated the world but loved the world that you gave your only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life that is your gospel that is your good news that your response is love and boy do we need to learn how to love like that beginning with loving you and then learning to love ourselves so that we can love others in a healthy way thank you for the word the spirit And community, the church. Thank you for knowing what we need in order to learn, grow, and contribute. We thank you for every prayer that was prayed. Thank you for the communion table. Thank you for fellowship, representatives, worship, every song. Thank you for your presence throughout. And now, Father, we turn our hearts and minds to the wisdom and instruction of your word. Touch our eyes to see, our ears to hear, and our hearts to receive. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. Come on, greet three people before you're seated. Bless them in the name of the Lord. By the way, for those of you who are not at that place of biblical literacy and you're wondering why we would have a song praising Yahweh and not Jesus. <laughs> Y'all got that. Well, you're a sharp congregation. I love you. I love you. Thank you. Thank you. Make me look good here. Thank you. Yeah. Jesus said, if you've seen me, You've seen the Father. I and the Father are one. Amen? Amen? And some people get confused. There's some people who think that Christ is Jesus' last name, and they're still trying to wrestle through that. But it points to the fact that serious Bible study, how many are some serious students of the Bible in here? Okay, we've got 10 of you, thank you. (laughs) Serious Bible study transcends self-help and self-therapy. Now, it's great that you open the Psalms and start your day, or should I say end your day. You should be opening Proverbs and starting your day with some wisdom and then opening Psalms at night before you go to bed to end your day with reflection, devotion, and appreciation and gratitude. Amen. And it's good that you can take the text and be inspired to do great things, right? Uh, Because I can do all things through Christ, who strengthens me. Hallelujah. For we are more than Conquerors through him that loved us. And greater is he that is in me than is he that is in the world. And whatsoever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. Hallelujah. <laughs> That's a good place to start. And if you have to continually stay there, it means that you're not convinced about those things. Because once you're convinced about those things, you dig deeper. You get into the foundation of things. So serious Bible study. Say serious Bible study. Yes. And I'm saying this because I was in a conversation uh, yesterday with two of our members. And I, and I shared this text and they loved it so much. I said, Pastor, can you just, you know, get that to me. Serious Bible study means constantly reevaluating your thinking. As you study, learn, and grow. I'm going to say it again. Serious Bible study means constantly reevaluating your thinking. As you study, learn, and grow. As you study, learn, and grow. And God has called us to learn, grow, and contribute. To learn, grow, and contribute. Let's try that again. God has called us to what? Learn, grow, and contribute. How and what you learn determines how you grow, and how you grow determines what you contribute. So if you're not learning... Substantively, right? Substantively, if you're not learning with accuracy, if you're not learning in a healthy way, then your growth is going to be unhealthy. And guess what? So will be your contribution. We're here to give back. Well done, good and faithful servant means you did something. So we're here to what? CCC, come on. The scripture says, and Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and gained favor with God and man. So we're here for three reasons. What are they? Come on. Learn, learn grow, and contribute. And is God concerned about how we learn? Jesus said, take heed how you hear, take heed what you hear. What you hear is the content. How you hear is how you process that information. And for the Christian, you know the text, be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the what? Renewing of your mind. Because only then will you be able to, the rest of the text, prove what is good, what is acceptable, what is the perfect will of God. And the word perfect doesn't mean flawless, it means complete. So we have a responsibility to study. But serious study, serious study of Scripture means constantly reevaluating your thinking as you study, learn, and grow. And here at CCC, I try to do that. The ministers try to do that every time that we get up. We want to make you think about your faith. How you apply it, how you're living it. We want to make you think critically about your faith. It is dangerous, and let me tell you something. If you ever go to a meeting and they say, check your brain at the door and then come in. Don't go in. (laughs) Definitely don't check it. You want to think critically. Critically. What sets us apart from every other species. Is that we are rational beings. Our rationality. We have the capacity for rationality. We don't always use it. But we have the capacity for rationality. And that's why God can say to a people. Who are in sin. He said though your sins be as scarlet. Right? Come let us reason together. Let's think this through. And as you study the scripture, as you mature, as you gain new knowledge, understanding and wisdom and experience, guess what? Certain texts that you thought you knew, you discover in a new way. Come on, how many have gone back and read a passage and said, wow, I didn't see that. And my job is to show you things that you don't see. So when you sit and you hear and you say, man, I look at that text so many times, I didn't see that. What's wrong with me? Nothing's wrong with you. All right? Because if that weren't if that didn't happen to you, I wouldn't have a job. <laughs> but the scripture in Ephesians 4 says that when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave what? Gifts to men. He gave some apostles, some prophets, some pastors and teachers and evangelists. When Peter was ready, After his crisis, Jesus said, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Right? Feed my sheep. The prophet Jeremiah, the spirit of God said, the time will come when I'll give you pastors or shepherds after my own heart who will feed you with knowledge and understanding so that you're not afraid, nor are you lacking. And I want to highlight that word lacking because it means deficiency. I was in a meeting discussing poverty uh, this past week and thinking through how to approach issues of poverty and pointed out that poverty is not just deficiency in material goods. Jesus talked about spiritual poverty The poor in, come on, spirit. You've read it in the Beatitudes. So there is spiritual poverty. There is emotional poverty. As well as economic poverty. There is intellectual poverty. Poverty comes in various forms and has different causes. But essentially, it's deficiency. It means we're lacking something. And our theology of the house here is that original sin resulted in a deficiency. It wasn't a cancer that we all caught and we're dying from and then just Jesus comes and heals the cancer. No, we lost something when we were separated from God. And guess what? Whenever you're separated from God, you are deficient. And that's why when Paul was upset, because he couldn't overcome something in his own life, and he cried out to God three times, take this from me. What was God's response? My grace is sufficient. Why? Because your sufficiency is in your relationship with me. So apart from God, we suffer deficiency. We lost holiness of God, the justice of God. So I want to pick up where Pastor Jamal left off in his list and continue to build on that. Continue to weave our theme this year of renewal. Continue to point to signs of the times, which we'll touch on. But let me give you a framework. Say framework. Worldview, worldview, your worldview, how you view the world, right? Your worldview, how you view the world, which includes yourself and others and everything else in this thing we call the world. Your worldview, is a narrative about the world in which we live, your worldview. And everybody has one, whether it's intentional or whether it just materialized as a result of all of the things that have influenced and shaped your thinking. Your worldview is a narrative about the world in which we live. A narrative is... A spoken or written account of connected events. It is a spoken because it comes from oral tradition. Or it's written because it has been preserved in text. So your worldview is a narrative. A narrative informs our beliefs our assumptions and our choices wow that's a problem if you don't know your worldview because it means that you have a narrative influencing your beliefs your assumptions and your choices and you don't even realize that it's influencing you so you must be intentional about your worldview, What narrative is driving me? Do you know that evolution is a narrative produced by science about the world in which we live? A sequence of events that are connected to each other beginning with a big bang. Everything just appeared. It's a narrative. It's a narrative that informs People's what? Beliefs, their assumptions, what they assume, right? And their choices. Now, whether you agree with evolution or not, or its forms, it's still a narrative that's influencing our world and influencing the way people think. Isn't it true? Yeah. How many know the Bible is a narrative? It's a worldview. It's a narrative. It, it 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 is a sequence of events that are connected to each other that tell a story. And from that story, we are informed in terms of our beliefs, what we believe, what we assume about life, about people, about ourselves, and it influences the choices that we make. So the biblical narrative is critical. And when you say, well, I don't believe that there really was a, an Adam and an Eve. Maybe it's just the story that God used. Well, I'll tell you what, even if you reduce it to allegory, all right, it's still a very powerful story that captures so much of our human experience, which takes genius because we're still unpacking Genesis chapter 1 and two, thousands of years later. So to try to criticize the text doesn't work because the reality is the text continues to shape lives. One of the things that fascinated me very much about Jesus, there are in the Gospels, the four Gospels, 34 references to crowds. Did you hear that? Now, there were exorcists, there were itinerant preachers, preaching so many different things in his day and time. But why is it that historians cannot get beyond the crowds that he attracted? If he were around today, he'd probably have quite a few likes and followers. In fact, he already has 2 billion followers today. (laughs) With no Instagram, no Facebook, y'all hearing me no Twitter account (laughs) but he's got two billion followers the crowds the people were so impacted by what he had to say that they could not keep away and in fact when he spoke they didn't want to let him go In fact, in in, in one scenario, the religious leaders who were plotting against him sent some Roman soldiers that were assigned to them to Jesus just to trap him and arrest him. They got there and joined the crowd, heard what he had to say, were baffled by it, went back to those who sent them and came without him. And they said, well, what what happened? And they said to, to those individuals who said, we never heard anybody talk like that. And, of course, their response was, has he bewitched you (laughs) too? His message, what he had to say, how he responded was so profound. That's why I tell people it's not the institution of Christianity that saved me. It's the person (laughs) of Jesus. He's the one that captured my mind, my heart, my emotions, my will. Seized me, arrested me, and hasn't let me go since then. Anybody else know the person? Turn your neighbor and say, neighbor. You don't get to heaven by what you know. You get there by who you know. So last week, when Pastor Jamal listed that, those eight elements, it was a framework for the biblical narrative. I'm giving you language so that you can talk about this, understand this. It was a framework. What does a framework do? It creates a system or a structure for information, for a narrative, for a story. So, what, what, what I did early on to try to make sense of, of all of that information, how many know there's a lot of information in the Bible? Yeah. That's why it takes you a year to read through it. It takes time, right? But how can we have a, a, a framework? And that's what we shared with you. And we're putting that into, through NSBT, into a textbook that includes hermeneutics and an examination of the ancient world. But it begins with creation. And it ends with consummation, which means completion of all things. And what does it complete? It completes God's redemptive plan. Because what is the overarching theme of this biblical narrative? The redemption of humanity and the restoration of creation the way God intended it. And that's why where your theology begins is critical. If it begins with the fall, that that theology will have at it its foundation what's wrong with us. If it begins with creation, that at the foundation of that theology we'll have what's right with us and Jesus came to fix. One leads to guilt and despair, the other leads to excitement and anticipation and appreciation. So, the biblical narrative is our narrative, our story. It informs our what? Come on, beliefs, assumptions, and our choices. How many have had the Bible influence your choices? How many felt the influence of Scripture on your choices? Yeah, what you choose and what you choose not to choose. That's a good one. Yeah. It gives you a set of values, and your values are what's most important to you, what you stand for, what you're willing to fight for. It gives you a set of values because every decision we make in life is a value judgment. I'm going to say that one again because you need to write it down. Every decision we make in life is a value judgment. You're placing value on one thing over another. Beautiful passage in the book of Acts says, and Moses chose rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. He made a value judgment. He responded in the wrong way and God had to chill him out for a few years and then call him. But every decision you make in life is a value judgment. This is very powerful in, in husband and wife relationship or, or girlfriend and boyfriend relationships. How many understand what I'm talking about here? It's funny, I'm using language that, I have to, that I'm conscious of now. Do I have to explain that? <laughs> but within the context of those relationships, each partner is watching to see... And, 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 and they evaluate the decisions that the other partner makes, or the spouse makes, right? Or the friend makes because they're, they're looking at it as a value judgment. This is very true when it comes to men and women, husbands and wives, because wives are watching the value of the decision that the husband is making. Because it's always somehow telling her how important she is to him. And if he doesn't get
1: that, Oh,
0: pray for the peace of Jerusalem. <laughs> That's real. So, praise the Lord. Hallelujah! All right, it's good preaching here. Someone asked me, you know, how long have you? Pre- how long did it take to prepare that sermon? All my life. (laughs) So let's go to the Gospel of Luke. And I want to highlight certain things. Does that look political? Huh? Is that political language? Or is that spiritual? So help me out, am I, am I spelling okay here? All right, am I okay? My spelling is better than Pastor Jamal's penmanship. <laughs> I'll tell you that much. He's ministering in Long Island today and we're not live streaming, so. Well, we are live streaming, but not the Long Island. Yeah, no, no. I spell better than he writes. Anyway, (laughs) the marginalized and those who are in what? Power. The oppressed and the oppressor. The left and the right. That's definitely political language here in America, right? But remember what I said. Government was created by God, but politics was created by who? People. Politics is essentially the art of winning and holding on to power. And we've made it an art. In fact, you can study political science in school. Do we have any political science uh, graduates here? Anybody study political science in school? Yeah, some of you? Was it that bad that you only raised your hand halfway? (laughs) Wow, sorry. Yeah. So politics is the art. God created government for specific reasons. And then we step in and we create all of these systems and structures and ideas. And, and, and I want to speak to some of the division that we have in our nation. So I'm going to talk a little faster. And we're not going to finish this today, but I want to introduce it, all right, because in Christ, these these divisions don't exist. I'm going to try that one more time. Christians, in Christ, these divisions don't exist. You know why? Because some of the things that he did would put him on the, and some of the things he did would put him on the, he didn't only address the, but he also addressed the, he had a passion for the, but also spoke to those in. And even when he chose his staff, there was one on the, and one on the, what about the others, Pastor, there was 12, isn't there 10 more? Well, the one on the left and the one on the right are the only ones that were politically and socially highlighted. And yet Jesus called them to work together around a common cause. I can imagine some of the conversations that may have taken place with the 12 sometimes when the one on the left reared his head and said, we got we to gotta, we gotta deal something. We got to overthrow that government. And the one on the right said, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I'm a tax collector. You're dealing with my income. Simon was a zealot. That was a a, a radical political party that lived for the overthrow of the Roman government and the liberty, the, the releasing, the freedom of the Jewish people who were under the Roman power. Matthew was a tax collector. In fact, he's the one who wrote about these and highlighted the differences. Matthew was a tax collector. And please understand, I was sharing yesterday, tax collector is what we know today as a customs agent. In other words, the taxation was charged when people were coming and going and bringing goods and services. And the Roman government said, we want X amount. Whatever you charge is on you, which meant the tax collector or the customs agent could elevate the price depending upon how they felt or or their level of greed. And that's why they were so hated. And that's why Jesus, the the, the religious leaders, got upset with him when he sat having dinner with them. Why does your master spend time with tax collectors and sinners? So tax collectors (laughs) and sinners were in the same pot. And the only reason they could do that is because they had a relationship with the Roman government. And yet these two guys were on his staff, working together in harmony. (laughs) Don't you think for one minute that their humanity did not raise up, even though it's not recorded. We know we were dealing with human people, real people. And can you imagine some of the tensions at some of the meetings? And Jesus made sure that as they were watching because he knew they were watching him, he made sure that his movements shut everybody up. And we're going to look at that movement as we prepare. In the Gospel of Luke, chapter 18, verse 35. And I'm using the King James. ooh hoo Whitherest hitherous, thitherest? <laughs> Lovest thou meest. The King James. Luke chapter 18, verse 35. And it came to pass that as he was come, what? And the, nigh, the word nigh means near, right? right? As he had come nigh or near Jericho... A certain what? Come on. A certain what? I can't hear you. So Jesus was on his way to Jericho. A blind man, right? But where was the blind man? Huh? In proximity to the city. Where was he? When he came near the city... It was a blind man. See, they didn't have suburbs the way we got suburbs. What was, where the power, the economics was, was in the city. If you lived on the outskirts, right, you were the marginalized. You didn't have a nice home out on the island, you were in the outskirts. So the blind man represents more than someone who who needs healing, right? He symbolizes something. And his location symbolizes something. He's on the outskirts of the city, on the outskirts of power, on the outskirts of the economy. He represents the marginalized. And let me tell you something, you got see, and that's why I say, you've got, as you become a serious Bible student, you begin to think it through deeper. You dig the text and try to understand it in the context. Because listen, listen, you know, we celebrate. We, we hallelujah, Jesus is going to heal this guy. How many read the text? How many know that Jesus is going to heal this blind man? He cries out to Jesus, right? He's a blind man. Now, Now, listen, people think that when you get saved, everything gets wonderful. Sometimes it gets worse before it gets better. Tell, you, talk to, tell me your neighbor, say, he's talking about somebody you know. <laughs> Had a woman come to the church. She said, Pastor, I was going to this XYZ church, I'm not going to say, and I was fine, but I wanted more from God. So I came here so I could learn, and I came here, and it's like all hell broke loose. I'm having more problems now. But the thing is, I'm enjoying it. I'm, I'm dealing with it differently. See, saints and sinners go through, or, or saints and saints, or non-believers and believers. How's that? That's a little bit better. See, I'm evaluating my language and process here. We all experience the same life, but we experience life differently. We approach it differently. So as Jesus it's getting near, as getting near to Jericho. He encounters a what? A blind man. And why I say you got to think things through? Because consider this. Jesus heals the blind man, right? Do you know that that left him healed? He can now see, but now he was in trouble. The first piece of trouble handed to him was economic trouble. Because when he was blind, he had an excuse to beg and people to give him money. Now he got sight. What's he going to do now? You see, we don't think it through. We look at the miracle and say, hallelujah. I said, when I read, I said, "Uh uh-oh, this guy's going to have some problems here. Not only that, the people knew who he was. So not only did he get healed, but he had a reputation. And how many people did he manipulate in order to survive? And Jesus comes and gives him sight. Hallelujah. And the man has his eyes open. He experiences, oh, oh, I can see. Uh oh. <laughs> He's got to process. What does that mean now? So it's on the outskirts of Jericho. Where is it? On the what? Outskirts of Jericho. Let's go to another text, all right? Let's go to Luke 19, 1. Same book of Luke, same gospel of Luke. We go from verse, chapter 18, verse 35, to chapter 19, verse 1. And Jesus, what? Come on. Come on. And Jesus, what? entered and passed through. So so in chapter 18, verse 35, where is he? Where is he? He's on the outskirts, right? He's on the outskirts. He's on the perimeter of whatever society is concentrated in the city. And he's, he's moving, he, he deals with the blind man. You get read the story, you probably read it already, I hope you did, all right? But the, the blind man cries out and Jesus heals him. And now he's, he's moving on. So he moves from, from from the marginalized blind man who was, look, part of the oppression system that was there in Jericho. Understand that this blind man was not only a victim of him not having sight, But he was also a victim to whatever systems and structures were in place and whatever value they placed upon people like him. Because if the systems and structures didn't place any value on people like him, he was left to struggle on his own. And hope for the goodwill of individuals who would give him something. And most likely there was nothing in place. So he was on his own. So Jesus continues his journey. Now he's, the text says that, that he is now what? He's entered Jerusalem and he's passed, I mean, Jericho, and he's passing through, right? So this next individual, and behold, there was a man named what? Come on. Zacchaeus. How many know the story of Zacchaeus? Which was the, come on, chief. Among the publicans, it didn't say republicans. It simply said publicans, which is King James language for tax collectors. Got it? So he was in a position of what? Power. In fact, let's just read the rest of the text. What does it say about him? He was what? He was what? He was in a position of power <coughs> and he was wealthy as a result of that power. So notice, we move in, in, in just a, a few verses from the marginalized and the oppressed individual on the outskirts to inside the city where we encounter the power structure. And it symbolizes by this man Zacchaeus. And what does Jesus say to him? He says, how many know the story about Zacchaeus? I, I, we don't have the time to read through it, but read it when you want. He, he, right, he was a man of short stature. Remember the story? And Jesus is walking. Remember, Jesus wasn't walking by himself. There was a parade of people. Remember those crowds I talked about, right? There was always a, a, a crowd of people gathering around him, plus his disciples. And he points Zacchaeus out because what? Zacchaeus wants to see this guy. He heard about him. He wants to see this guy. He climbs a tree. And from up in the tree, he's watching, and he wasn't there to encounter Jesus in any way. He just wanted to see. And, and, and because of his message and his miracles, it, 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 it stirred in the hearts of people a curiosity, if not a belief. And what does Jesus do? Zacchaeus! Come on down. I've got to go to your house today. Can you imagine what was in that man's mind? Now, listen, listen. He was rich, but he was short. How do we unpack that one? Did he have a Napoleonic complex? We don't know. How did he exercise his power? We do find out. So he comes down, Jesus comes to his house, and Jesus says, salvation has come, this day, salvation has come to your house, to this house. And the disciples, remember the disciples, whoa, wait a minute. What happened to the gospel to the poor? Set at liberty those that are bound, open the prison doors, set the captives free. So, when you read the text, go back and read it in chapter 19. They criticize Jesus. They're critical of him for engaging with this individual, this rich and powerful individual who is exploiting his own people. How could Jesus be in a relationship with that man? And to say salvation has come? And if you read the text, Jesus says to his disciples, understand that this man, too, is a child of Abraham. In spite of his wrong and his positions of power... He still needs what was promised to Abraham, which is me. And notice the impact, because first Jesus is on the outskirts of Jericho, dealing with the blind man, the marginalized, right? The disenfranchised, the discriminated against. I could really get deep on this. And then he goes into the city, and he meets the power broker. And in reaction... Zacchaeus says, what? I've never felt anything like this. Jesus, let me say something. Honor those you want to influence. We tend to attack those we want to influence. He honored them. He honored him. He honored the man by going to his house. And all the religious folks, including his staff, had a problem with that. And what was, the, what was the effect of that encounter? Because Zacchaeus now makes a promise, <laughs> which is interesting. We read the detail. He said, I'm going to give half of my wealth to the poor. And then he says, he says, and if I've stolen anything. What do you mean if? <laughs> read the text. Enjoy the story. He said, and if I've stolen anything, I'm going to return it. Yeah, that's hyperbole. But we get what was happening. He was having a moment of facing himself as a rich person in a position of power and reflecting on how much he's exploited others like the man who was met on the outskirts of society. And what do we get from this? I'm glad you asked. Jesus healed the oppressed and loved the oppressor. In one stroke, he dealt with power structure in society. Now, can you imagine Zacchaeus, who is the chief tax collector? Jesus, as a result of that encounter with this man, changed a person and influence systems and structures, and cause a, redistri- a radical redistribution of wealth. That's why they want to kill him because he's dangerous. You're upsetting things here. What do you mean the high was going to be, are going to be made low? What are you talking about, Jesus? So that was a setup. And then after the encounter, his disciples are are, are puzzled now because they're trying to interpret what they just experienced. They saw him at both ends of the spectrum. The marginalized, the disenfranchised, those in power, and yet he's embracing and transforming both of their lives. One by changing his physical condition and the other by changing his heart and his mind. And all of a sudden, a conversation is struck About the kingdom of God. Let's go to it in Luke chapter 19. Let me scroll down here. Verse 9. And Jesus said to him, This is one of the disciples who was upset, but this is after Zacchaeus says, I'm going to restore. <laughs> you know, we, we've got to read verse 8. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have if I've taken anything from any man by false accusation, I restore him for foe. And Jesus said to him, This day salvation has come to his house. Not because Jesus came, but because he responded to Jesus' coming. And Jesus continued, for so much as he also is a son of Abraham. And here's the text. Here's the text. number two, uh, Verse 10. For the son of man is come to seek and to save. Come on. Come on. That which was lost. And as they heard, his disciples heard these things, he added and spoke a parable because he was near to Jerusalem. Right? And why else? Why else did he speak this parable? Come on. Come on, why else? Oh, where's the text? Hey, where's my staff in the media room? They know what I look like. Put the text on the screen. There you go. And as they heard, come on, as they heard these things, he added and spoke a parable for two reasons. Number one, because he was near to Jerusalem. And things were about to go down in Jerusalem. Right? Right? But what's the second reason? The second reason what I want to focus on. second reason is because they what? They thought the kingdom of God should, let's go to the next verse, immediately appear. So as a result of their assessment of his movements, dealing with the poor and disenfranchised, dealing with the power structure, those in power, and those systems that they represented, they were formulating an understanding of the kingdom, and they felt, ah, This is it. It's ready. And this is why they were charged up about going to Jerusalem. Because when he went into Jerusalem, what was he going to do? He was going to come on the back of a donkey. Come on. Did you read the book? To fulfill the prophecies that were spoken. They're going to say, Hosanna. In the highest, Hosanna. They're going to celebrate him thinking that, okay, he's now going to lead us. And overthrow the Roman government. So they're formulating an idea, a concept of the kingdom that was faulty and he had to correct it. And so he gives a parable. He tells a story. And parable, para means alongside. He said, therefore, a certain... Verse 12, therefore, a certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. And he called his ten servants and delivered. Now, look, 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 just those words went somewhere, right? Into a far place, right? Far country to what? Receive for himself a kingdom, which he's talking about his inauguration as the king was with yet to come. All right. And then to what? To return, to come back. And he called his 10 servants and delivered them 10 pounds and said unto them, occupy till I come. Say, occupy till I come. So he was saying, he was announcing, look, some things are going to go down. The kingdom is not going to come immediately right now. There's some things that have to happen. Uh, A. Bernard has to get saved in order to that to happen. 2,000 years have to take place, some history, you know. Come here, included in that story. Yeah, you had to get saved too. Because he wanted us to be in that number. A part of that whole experience. Right? He says, But while I'm gone, I want you, and I want this word to share its own screen. I want you to what? <laughs> For how long? <laughs> Until I return. What does he mean by occupy? How do we understand the the, the language in which this was spoken by Jesus to his disciples? How do we unpack this and respond to it? Because evidently, it's our call to action, to life, to thinking, to emotions, to choices, everything. Occupy. Till I come. Occupy. And next Sunday when we come back here (laughs) we're going to unpack Occupy till I come. (laughs) What does it mean? How do we understand it? My youngest grandchild, I have 25. Oh, Pastor Karen has them too. 25 grandchildren and our, our last grandchild is uh, a, a granddaughter, and she's so sweet. And somehow I was whispering to her to say Papa before she said Dada. <laughs> and it worked. <laughs> but the problem is how she says it, because I was whispering it in her ear. So now, whenever she calls me, she says Papa. <laughs> As though it's this big secret between her and I close your Bible did you get anything out of this today that's an amazing book that Bible and people who criticize it know just enough to criticize it yesterday I talked a little bit about with the staff about me not saying in the name of Jesus because I was being raked over the cold. And it's important that we unpack that. What does it mean? Is it words of incantation that we attach to the end of our prayer. The model prayer that Jesus gave did not have in the name of Jesus at the end of it. And out of all the prayers in the New Testament, only two ended in the name of Jesus. Others ended in some way. And as you look back at church history, it became a tradition in more recent phases. But what they understood as in the name of Jesus was not magic words that we attach all right, they understood it as an authority that came by way of relationship. How many have ever read the, the, um, the story in the book of Acts of the seven sons of Siva? You remember? See, and exorcisms were big around that time. So the use of incantation was a big deal. So they were trying to use the name of Jesus as though it was an incantation like Alakazam, Alakazum. And you would just attach it to the end of your prayer and your prayer all of a sudden has power. So someone who wanted to be a sorcerer, and exorcist, decided, and this is what he said, to a man who was demon-possessed, the book of Acts, He said, he said, I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preaches. and he got what he wanted. The demons responded. They said, I don't think they look like that, but I'm just getting the feel of it. Said, well, Paul, we know. Jesus, we know. But
4: who, who, just who,
0: Because they use in the name of Jesus as words for authority. But what was missing? The relationship. It is not the words. It's the relationship that gives it power. When he said, whatever you ask in my name, he's talking about those in relationship with me. Because if you don't have the relationship, you don't have the juice. And you're going to be challenged by spiritual forces and powers when you call yourself representing him with whom you don't have a relationship with. I got to stop here. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Now, let me just tell you a secret. It got out about 50 years ago. I'm sorry, 48 years ago, that I'm a Christian. (laughs) It got out that I'm in relationship with Jesus. I'm being sarcastic. It's the relationship, folks. There's nothing wrong with using in the name of Jesus. But it's not a requirement to give your prayer some authority or legitimization because there are times when you pray, Lord, I need your help on this one. Oh, oh wait, in the name of Jesus. I'm not diminishing the power because demons tremble at the sound of that name with respect and reverence for that name, but only when the person using it has the relationship with Jesus that warrants that authority, that legitimizes that authority. But I said, I'm going to stop here. Come on, let's all say Folks, just get me riled up. (laughs) There was so much more to that prayer than the end of it. And that's why we're going to unpack it and share it with you. Well, why don't you slap high five with three people today and say, I got that word. (laughs) Jesus went after the oppressed and the oppressor, the systems and structures and the people in those systems and structures to create change, to make a difference in society make a difference. He didn't choose one over the other. And I know he's been painted in so many different ways, but let's let the scripture speak on his behalf. Amen. Come on, give God a good hand, clap offering. It begins with who you know. And our minister is going to come forward now lead you in prayer and i didn't do this thank you every one of you that have joined us virtually across the country around the world and across the street thank you for being with us you are a part of our spiritual family come on let's give some love and appreciation for all of our virtual members around the world hallelujah Minister Dario is going to lead you in prayer and direction, and then he's going to close the service. Thank you. I love you guys. It is a pleasure to be a pastor, to feed God's sheep, especially for this congregation. God bless you.
5: Come on, family. Let's just praise God for an amazing word. Amen. family let me just pray over us if you would just bow your head and close your eyes so father in the name of Jesus and God we thank you that we're in relationship to proclaim that authority and so father I pray for your people in a very real and tangible way father we heard today transform us help us to navigate and not alienate. God, I'm praying for your people today that they will be salt and light in the places in which you've placed them to be. Father, whether that be on their job, whether that be in their family, in their neighborhoods, God, I pray that you will help us navigate conversations conversations in spaces to be your representatives and to be your influence. God, we want to give you glory where we're at, Lord God. So Father, as a congregation, we accept that responsibility to be salt and light. And Father, we thank you that you're going to show us and teach us through our pastor how to occupy. So Father, bring glory Father, show us how to use us to change people in ways that culture can be transformed. And Father, for those who are here, maybe online and those present in this room and family, I'm speaking to you. If you are being moved right now to be in a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, this moment is for you. God said this very simply in John 3:16, and we quote it all the time, "For God so loved the world that He gave his only son, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. So the good news is this: that God sent His Son to earth as a man, so that through his life, death and resurrection, we might be saved and rescued. Amen. So if this is you, I'm going to ask that you will repeat this prayer after me. And we'll repeat it with you. Simply say this. God, thank you for speaking to me personally today. I recognize my need for you. Thank you for sending your son, Jesus, to die on a cross for my sins thank you jesus for paying the full price so that i can be in right relationship with you amen let's give a round of applause for those who might have by faith so if you're online, we're going to ask that you give us a call. You're going to text the number on the screen and give us a call so that we can speak to you personally. If you're here and if you accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior, we say welcome to the family. Welcome to, to a right relationship with God. And we would like to talk to you. And some of our ministers will be out in the vestibule. And we would love to put something into your hands. Amen? Amen. Turn to your neighbor and say, neighbor. It's time to occupy. Come on, say it like you may say, neighbor, it's time to occupy. Now let's say something amazing as we leave this place, but never God's presence. Say it loud, say it proud. Jesus is Lord, period. We believe it, we pro and we God bless you, family.
0: Thanks for tuning in to the A.R. Bernard Podcast. I hope you were enriched by the information and or the conversation make sure subscribe by clicking the link in the bio to gain more information about me and the work that
5: I'm doing. Again, thank you and God bless.